Genesis 12, 1-3 The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Revelations 22, 1-3 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the and the lamp down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Please be seated. I'm not going to preach uh, a sermon per se this morning, um, which means I'm not going to take a particular passage and teach from it. What I would like to do this morning is give an overview of the Bible story. We've always tended, I think, to think of the Bible as a collection of stories. Noah and the flood is a Bible story. David and Goliath is a Bible story. But there are actually chapters in the one great story. And Noah, David, Elijah, Peter, and Paul are characters who come and go as they play their part in the story. And that's why it's a good practice, by the way, to read through the Bible cover to cover at least once. So that then when we read other parts of the Bible regularly, we'll have a sense of where that passage that we're reading fits in the story. So today I'll try to tell that one story. Now before doing that, I'm going to very quickly give you the high points of the Bible timeline, which you see here on the stage and maybe wondered what was going to happen this morning. Um, just really quickly... Creation and Adam, of e Adam and Eve and uh, the fall and Noah and the Tower of Babel is, is all in these sort of indeterminate past. We don't know how far back. Um, the first point in history that we can say with any confidence is approximately the time of Abraham, 2100 to 2000 B.C., and then Abraham's son Isaac and son Jacob and then the father of the 12, who will be the patriarchs of Israel through this time. I'm going very quickly for you, but we'll, we'll do it slower later. Eventually, they end up in Egypt and in slavery. And then Moses comes to deliver the people approximately 1400 B.C. <clears throat> um, they enter the promised land, the period of the judges. By about 1000 B.C., we get to the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon. Um, and then uh, the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, two nations, which we'll also talk about later. And then they go into captivity and then return. And then the Old Testament ends at about 430 A.D. 
And then there's 400 years where the Bible sort of stops. And we don't pick up the story again until the B.C. A.D. timeline and where you have Jesus in his life and then the book of Revelation. So 100 years, a relatively thin slice of the whole of Bible history. So for what it's worth, just to give you that kind of overview. Um, now, 2,200 years of biblical history, not counting the flood and what came before, that takes place where Abraham is born in what's now Iraq and in Egypt and in Israel and in Babylon um, over more than 2,000 Years. So when people talk about uh, Bible times as if it was one single chunk, um, we need to be careful uh, about that because they're in one area that's called uh, Bible times. And it's also good, I think, to remember that biblical history takes place in the context of a broader history, that is, world history. For example, by the time Abraham comes on the scene way back here, the Great Pyramid in Egypt and the Sphinx are already several centuries uh, old. Um, there are records of the first dynasties in China, or the first dynasty that we have a record of, um, and there was history before that, also around this time. Uh, Stonehenge built around this time. Um, Homer, the Greek, writing the Odyssey and the Iliad around here. Uh, Buddha, Confucius, born here. So there's all kinds of other stuff that's going on in the world. And I think sometimes we tend to think of uh, biblical history as its own sort of separate unit, and I think maybe that that's not great. Um, for the story that I'm going to walk through with you this morning, I have to say at the outset that I'm indebted to some other people. The story is familiar, but a gentleman named, named David Helm um, who in turn had read a book by a man named Graham Goldsworthy. You don't have to remember that, but I'm, I'm just citing them as sources. Uh, they're the ones that help with uh, the terms around which I'm going to frame this story. So I just need to mention them. So shall we? Uh, Adam and Eve. The story starts, of course, in Genesis chapter 1 where God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates by the power of his word. And God said, uh, let there be, and there was. On day six of creation, God creates the creatures of the earth, and he blesses them, and then he creates Adam and Eve and blesses them. And God said to them to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over all the earth, to rule it. So as they themselves are under the sovereign rule of God, so they are to exercise that rule in his name to all that God has made throughout the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which they were to work and to care for. And from there... Um, Humanity would grow and spread and eventually uh, through, move throughout the earth. So in, in this time, you have what I think is in embryo, the themes that are going to tie the scripture together. And it'll become explicit later on, but I'll put it in these terms. You have God's people, Adam and Eve, 
in the place that God gave to them, which is the Garden of Eden. And through their care and the care of their offspring, to, to bless, to do good in, in God's name, in the whole earth. And uh, the place that God had given to them, just for simplicity this morning, I'm just going to speak of it as God's place. So that's how it begins. But then the serpent enters the scene, and Eve is tempted, and Adam with her. And they reject the rule of God by disobeying the word that God had spoken to them, that they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of this disobedience, God speaks a curse over them, and they are banished from the garden. So suddenly God's people no longer carry God's blessing and are no longer living in God's place. They're living apart from or outside his rule. And without that, they cannot help but be sinful by nature. I'm going to bring this closer. Then over time, the story of the the history of the people becomes a pretty sorry one. Sin takes over so that by the time of Noah, sin has so taken over that all of the inclinations of all the thoughts of all men's hearts become evil all the time. That's what the scripture tells us, is how it even phrases it. So they continue to reject the rule of God. And so again, instead of blessing, there is judgment, a flood by which all people are judged by God, all people are destroyed, all except Noah and his family. But because they too are sinful by nature, As people again multiply, sin reigns. In Genesis 11, there is once again a rejection of God's rule. Instead of the original command to go and multiply and subdue the earth, many of them decide just to pull together in one spot. And rather than seek the glory of God, they decide to build a tower to make a name for themselves. We call that the Tower of Babel. And so God has let them hit the moral bottom, not once, but twice, the flood and the Tower of Babel. And then we come to chapter 12 and a man called Abraham. I'm not sure all these will stay up, but hopefully they will. A man called Abraham. And God is going to take this one man out of all people and begin the great reversal. And God makes a covenant with him. And uh, Caitlin has just read this, but I'm going to read it again from Genesis chapter 12, the first few verses. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God will build a people. I will make you a great nation. God will give to them a place. Go to the land that I will show you. And through this people, all of the nations of the earth 
will be blessed. And it's been said that the whole Bible after this is an outworking of this promise, and I think that that's true. So Abraham, as I said, has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and these sons will become the patriarchs of God's people. The end of Genesis sees them ending up in Egypt. A famine has sent them there, and they go to Egypt to survive. But after it's all done, they don't return to God's place, the places that God has given to them. Instead, they stay in Egypt because they're doing fairly well in Egypt. They're prospering in Egypt. And while they're there, they begin to grow and multiply. So much so that Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, becomes afraid that they'll essentially take over the country, that either through um, some armed takeover or revolt or when an opposing army comes that they'll join them and that Egypt will be destroyed or defeated. I don't know. But Pharaoh is afraid of the descendants of Jacob. And so what he does to squash this threat is that he enslaves them. But even while enslaved, being enslaved, they multiply. The Bible says they multiply exceedingly and continue to multiply. So over this time, they're in slavery for several centuries. Over this time, God blesses them to the extent they have become, by this point, a nation of people. God has built God's people. And when this is done at the right time, God then sends a man named Moses to Egypt to deliver God's people out of slavery. Okay, right about here. Around 440 B.C. And they leave Egypt under Moses and make their way back to the land that God had given to their ancestors, Abraham and so on. On their way, they stop at Mount Sinai, which which is a place where God will again make a covenant with them. They will be God's people, and he will be their God. They will submit themselves to God's rule. At least that's what they say they'll do. But of course, they don't. Sin, sin's nature cannot be squashed for very long, and they rebel. They continually grumble against God and against his leader, Moses. And so because of their rebellion, God keeps them in the wilderness for 40 years, and it was the next generation that would come into the land, and they would do so under the leadership of Joshua. I can pick this up, really. There we go. So maybe, you know, in the 1200s or so B.C., Joshua leads God's people into God's place. And as soon as they enter God's place, they gather themselves together, and God's word is read to them. And once again, this generation says, we will submit ourselves to the rule of God. To God's people in God's place, but not yet a blessing to the nations around them, even though Rahab from another nation 
becomes a part of God's people. And nor would there be blessing for them before very long the people, guess what, they rebel. And in the book of Judges, they repeatedly rebel. God repeatedly rescues them only to have them repeatedly rebel after each deliverance. And there's even two occasions in Judges where there is civil war. Now God's people are fighting each other. But there's a hint of what is to come. The book of Judges ends with these words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he saw fit. And so then begins the journey towards having a king in Israel. In the next book, Ruth uh, traces part of the lineage of King David. In the book of 1 Samuel, Israel then is moving to a monarchy. It begins with Saul, uh, and then David comes to the throne. And it's David who, for the first time since Moses, 500 years before, brings the nation together under one leader. And in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to read that to you as well. No, I'm not. I'll just read part of it. In 2 Samuel 7, God then makes a promise or a covenant with David that his own son, David's son, will rule after him, that God will establish his throne, will discipline him if he sins, but God will never remove his love from him. But God also goes further and speaking not just of David's immediate son, God begins using the language of an eternal kingdom. Listen to this. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made secure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So now there's another element added to God's great work of reversal. God's people in God's place, blessing the nations of the earth, and now an eternal kingdom. And now the trajectory shoots upward. David's son Solomon comes to the throne of Israel. The wars that characterized the, the reign of David has ceased. And under Solomon, Israel as a whole nation experiences peace for the first time since going to Egypt at the end of Genesis. Solomon is extraordinarily wealthy. Israel prospers. Israel's territory is bigger than ever had been, or, as it turns out, ever would be. This is the golden age of Israel's history. This is what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 4 during the reign of Solomon. Chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, they ate and drank and were happy. Okay, God has made a people. He has blessed them. Verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Okay, this is God's place that he has given to them. Verse 34, same chapter. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And later on, the Queen of Sheba will come from far away also to see his splendor for herself and to hear his wisdom. So now the nations also are being blessed. And again in chapter 10, Solomon's great wealth is recounted 
A second time, this is what it says, all his drinking vessels were of gold, none were of silver, for silver was not considered as anything in Solomon's day. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. Okay, never before have God's people been so secure. Never before has their place been so large, so prosperous, and so at peace. Never before has Israel been a blessing to the nation. And now there is somebody on the throne of David who is wise and wealthy and honored among the nation. So is this a fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham? It doesn't get any better than this, does it? Well, again, there is a turning point. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 26. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his Present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Sounds great. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah, not sure if this reading is particularly exciting to you. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kuei, and the king's traders received them from Kuei at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. I mean, this sounds absolutely Wonderful, from 1 Kings, just a harmless description of the growing wealth of Solomon. What a great man. He's doing so very well. But back when Israel was about to enter the promised land, God had told them that if they had a king in their future, this is what the king should be like. Deuteronomy Chapter 17 says some things about the king, which includes this. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And 1 Kings chapter 11 then goes on to say, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. This is Solomon. In what looks like the height of his power and wealth, he is disobeying the Lord, stepping out from under the rule of God. And it seems that at this time when it looked like all of God's promises to Abraham and to his people were fulfilled, it is the king himself who disobeys and ultimately leads the nation into idolatry. 
After that, God's people soon fracture. Under the reign of Solomon's son, in about, excuse me, 922 BC, the Israelites rebel against the throne of David, and 10 of the tribes secede from Israel and become their own nation, and they keep the name Israel. Two tribes remain loyal to David. They're Benjamin and Judah, and they keep for themselves the name of Judah. So now, where you had God's people as one nation, now you have two. The history of Israel is that of a succession of dynasties unrelated to one another. One is Ahab, who most are familiar with, even if you don't know the Bible very well. But David's line, the history of Judah, is a line of king after king after king, the dynasty of David, an unbroken line in their history. But their history is hard. They rebel consistently. There's a few shining lights like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, for example. But the history of Judah is also one of consistent rebellion against God. And Israel's is as well. So as with the flood of Noah, God judgment. In 722, the Assyrian Empire is the dominant power in the east of the Mediterranean area. And so they walk through the land and conquer it and bring the people of Israel into exile. Judah escapes at that time, but about a hundred, little more than a hundred years later, uh, the Babylonians are the dominant power in that area. And they walk through and they conquer Judah and lead them into exile. Put this back up. So now you have God's people in exile. From the high point of Solomon, now God's people are a divided people. They're exiled from God's place. They have no king to rule over them. And rather than being a blessing to the nations, they are conquered and virtually destroyed by the nation. Okay, things had never been worse. God's covenant seemed about as far away from fulfillment as possible. In 535, give or take, there are a number of Jews who return from exile, but only a very few. Most Jews choose to remain in the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian and Persian empires, excuse me. Um, when they return, the few that are there rebuild the temple, but it's a pale shadow of the temple that Solomon had built, which was a temple of incredible splendor. And before very long, they too move away from God's rule, not through outright rebellion, but through, through what I think sometimes is worse, worse, through apathy. And so they limp along for a century or so until the Old Testament ends, like I said, in 430 BC with the ministry of Malachi. 
And then there is 400 years of biblical silence. Um, We don't have written in the scripture anything about a word from God in that time. No recorded prophet. doesn't mean that God did not speak to the people. From a biblical perspective, from God's holy and inspired word, there is 400 years when there was essentially uh, nothing happening. People were stagnant, kind of stayed as they were, and that was it. And in that time, historically, the Greeks, Greeks moved through, conquered the land. The Romans moved through and conquered the land. It was a time of hopelessness for the people. And then something happens. Jesus comes. And with Jesus, all of the language of God's covenant comes back into play. And I'll try to show you how that works. An angel comes to a young virgin and tells her that she will have a baby who will be the son of God and who will sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will never end. Talked about this the Sunday before Christmas. The wise men come and seek the one who is born king of the Jews. Um, Jesus is called the son of David, a royal title throughout his life. When he dies, there's a placard written over his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Um, The gospel of Matthew ends with the resurrected Jesus saying that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This is an eternal king over David's throne and all of heaven and earth. Is this the forever king? Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus calls out from among his followers 12 men and designates them his apostles or sent ones. And like Jacob's 12 sons, Jesus is calling out then a new people of God, a people who are followers, disciples of Jesus. Now later, some religious Jews would say to Jesus, we are sons of Abraham, but Jesus' response to them was, was, you're not sons of Abraham because you're not doing what he did. And later, the apostle Paul would also say that sons of Abraham are not sons by ethnic descent, but those who exercise the faith that Abraham had. Abraham believed what God had spoken to him. That belief God called faith and was credited to him as righteousness. And those who believe what God has said, God credits it to them, calls it faith, and credits righteousness to them. So the faith of Abraham is to believe what God has said and to live accordingly. So now there's a new people marked by faith centered around Jesus, an eternal king, a new people of God, One day Jesus was walking through the temple, which was, if any place was, God's place. This is where people would come and worship. And if anyone asked them, where is your God? The temple is where they would point. And in this temple, as Jesus walked through it, Jesus saw money changers and others extorting from the people money to line their own pockets. And Jesus was filled with fury at this uh, desecration of God's place, this place of worship. And he raised havoc. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He set free the animals that they were selling for sacrifice. And as he did, as he was doing these things, he yelled out, 
You have turned my father's house, which is supposed to be a place of prayer, into a den of robbers. And the angry merchants and the religious leaders who sanctioned the commerce of the temple challenged Jesus on his perceived authority to do these things. And Jesus replied, you tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. After his resurrection, his disciples remembered this episode and knew that Jesus was talking about his body, which had been destroyed but raised up in three days. Now, no longer a temple, but Jesus himself is a temple. He is the place, if you will, where people come and meet with God. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus said. And then, as we know, Jesus was crucified, and by his death, he took upon himself the judgment of God for all the ways by which people reject God's rule over them. And this he did in our place. Three days later, as I said, he was raised from the dead. And Romans 1 says that by this resurrection, God made a public declaration that Jesus was his own son. And then Jesus was raised again, this time to the glory of the majesty of heaven. But before he ascended... Jesus commissioned his disciples to bear witness to him, and not only in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but to the ends of the earth. And this they did, empowered and enabled by God's Spirit. And the book of Acts then in the Bible follows some of them as this message of Jesus expands outward even as far as Rome. And the message is this. Jesus was testified to by the prophets all along the way. Jesus died, he was raised again, and in Jesus there is forgiveness of sin for those who trust in his death and place themselves again under the lordship of Jesus, God's forever king. And to Antioch and Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth and Rome, this message went. And people in all of those places found life, found forgiveness a blessing to all the nations, and now including Calgary. Jesus, God's forever king. Jesus, who is the one by whom God's people are identified, who bear his name. Jesus, who is the place where, God's, uh, where his followers encounter God. And Jesus, whose person and whose work is the blessing for all the nations. At the end of God's word, there's the book of Revelation. And in that book, John has a vision in which some things are revealed. John sees the throne of God with Jesus on it. John sees the destruction of Satan who first tempted Adam and Eve to reject God's rule. He sees the judgment of all who have rejected God's rule throughout their lives. John also sees the blessing of all who have lived under that rule under that rule. And his revelation, the things that were revealed to him, includes a vision of the end of history. This is what John writes in Revelation 21, 1 to 3. I saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then Caitlin now also read this morning, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, who is Christ, through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. God's place, the city of God now dwelling with man. God's people, they will be his people, and his servants will be with him, will gaze upon him. God's forever rule, the throne of God and of the Lamb, and blessing, healing for all the nation. That's, that's how the Bible moves from one end to the other. That is the story of the Bible. And along the way, we read these chapters and episodes at things that happen. But it is one story. And we live then somewhere between the ascension of Jesus and the spreading of Jesus' gospel to the ends of the earth and the end of history. And here, too, we, like the Apostle Paul, under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit, bring the message, the gospel of Jesus throughout the earth. Paul also wrote that God's people are like a building in which God dwells, and that we are the body of Christ, and that we are somehow mysteriously in Christ, so there's a sense in which then the people of Christ are also God's place. We are in Christ. We are Christ's body. We become also the means by which people engage with God and through Jesus Christ. Christ is the temple. We are God's temple because we are in Christ. So now, in these days, I trust in the church the world sees God's people under God's rule, living in God's place in Christ, and the church being the means by which God brings blessing, i.e., the gospel of forgiveness through a crucified and risen and reigning and returning Jesus. So this, then, is the Bible story where we find ourselves in the last chapter. And I hope, my last sentence, I hope that that this is helpful for you in understanding the Scripture, a helpful way to see it, and that it will help you in your own reading of the Scripture. Amen. And we're going to close our service this morning by singing a hymn that may or may not be familiar, I Love to Tell the Story. And I'm going to ask that this time we stand to sing this. Number 516, I love to tell the story.